0: Jonah chapter 1, would you turn there in your Bibles as we continue in this uh, series, life-giving words series, Jonah, a fugitive prophet, a fishy tail, and a faithful God. And on this first Sunday of Epiphany, we are going to see even, it's th- th- this wasn't necessarily planned, at least not by me. But it's interesting that we come to a portion of the scriptures that we're looking at in the story of Jonah where God begins to clearly show us who he is and what he's all about and how that is often so different from who we think he is. And almost the idol that we have made and said, that's God, that's Yahweh, And he comes and he smashes all those things and says, that's not who I am at all. He's going to show us today, we're going to get a glimpse uh, of who he is in Jonah and how Jonah reveals the heart of God to us. This story of Jonah, epiphany, epiphany in Jonah is what, what really what we'll see today. Say this with me, will you? The pattern of unfailing love, would you say that? The pattern of unfailing love. Say it again. The pattern of unfailing love. God's pattern of unfailing love. Jonah chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 11 to 17. Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. I'm not going to read. I have been reading. Uh, from the beginning of the chapter each week, but I'm not going to do that as we get further into this book. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, so please review the chapter. And if you haven't done so yet, I encourage you to read through the book. It's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's an easy read. It will not take you long. It's just four chapters, as you can see yourself. And read through it and familiarize yourself with the story as we move through these weeks and and unpack the, the revelation that's here for us in this story of Jonah. Jonah 1, 11 to 17. Then they said to him, the sailors, that is, they said to Jonah, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard. They dug their oars in even more. Isn't this amazing? Even though Jonah says to them, throw me overboard, I'm the cause, the the sailors really did not want to do that. So they they struggled all the more to get the, uh, the boat ashore. They dug their oars in to get back to dry land, but they could not. Verse 13, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Look at, look at their perception of God. It's amazing. It's, it's it, it really in many ways, it's, it's more clear and accurate than Jonah's own perception of God. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made vows. They're worshiping Him. And the Lord appointed, verse 17, a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Hurl me into the sea, Jonah says. Hurl me into the sea. Once the sailors learn that Jonah, at this point in the story, Jonah is the cause of the storm, they reason that he is also the key to quieting the storm. And they ask him if there's something that should be done. And I don't think they were expecting him to give them the answer. He did. But they inquired of him, what should we do in order to calm this storm down? And Jonah replies that they should hurl him into the sea. Why does Jonah say this? Is Jonah repenting? And simply saying something like, I deserve death for my sin against God. Kill me. Is that what what Jonah's saying? Or are his motives the very opposite? Is he saying something like, I would rather die than obey God and go to Nineveh, so kill me? Is he submitting to God or is he rebelling against God? These are worthy questions. The answer is likely somewhere in the middle there's no reason to think that Jonah's motives and intentions would be any more orderly and coherent than ours would be in such a situation of peril in crisis. If we put ourselves into Jonah's boots, we, we, we would likely be as as, as Jonah was in, in many ways. So, To think that his intentions and his motives would be any more orderly and coherent than ours is probably unlikely. Some would say that Jonah could have repented at this point. He could have repented, and it would have changed everything. However, Jonah does not use the language of repentance. That's not really what we're seeing here in Jonah. Jonah. He's not using the language of repentance, nor would it make sense to think that he could turn from rebellion toward submission to God so quickly. Most of us know in our own lives and in the lives of others that we know the testimony of, the turning from rebellion toward submission to God is not usually a quick and instant one. It's a process. As the rest of the story will show us here in Jonah, Jonah's journey away from self-righteous pride will be a slow one. On the other hand, if Jonah simply wanted to die rather than go to Assyria, he could have killed himself without going on a voyage. He didn't need to go on this voyage. If he was that set against it, he could. He could have done that as devastating as that would have been. So the clue to understanding Jonah's outlook, Jonah's thinking, what is Jonah thinking at this stage? What, how is he looking at this whole situation as it has climaxed to this point? The key and the clue to understanding his outlook at this point is embedded in his answer to their question in verse 11. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And notice this about Jonah's response. Notice that Jonah says nothing about God. His concern is elsewhere. He's not concerned about God and what God thinks, and how God's heart has been grieved. He says that if they throw him into the water, the sea will become quiet for you, to the sailors. For I declare it is on my account that this great storm has come upon you. Jonah starts to take responsibility for the situation, Not because he's looking at God, but because he's looking at them. And this is significant for us. As we will see more clearly, Jonah refused God's mission largely because he did not want to extend mercy to pagans. Those whom he considered pagans. And scum. Yet isn't it interesting that now he views these terrified men before him differently. They have been calling on their own gods while he has not spoken a word to his God. They have questioned him respectfully, asking him what they should do rather than simply killing him these ones that he considered pagans, they've done nothing wrong. Their character and integrity, in fact, has evidently banished his nonchalant indifference and apathy toward the situation, and it has touched his own conscience. Jonah may have been moved by nothing higher than pity, but that was far better than contempt. Perhaps it is often that this is the first step in coming to one's senses spiritually. All of us in this room today, perhaps at one time or another or even now, Are praying for those that we know in our lives as prodigals, those who are running from God. They may be in our family, they may be in our neighborhood, they may be co-workers, whatever the case may be, we can think of those ones and as we pray for them and intercede for them and join the Father's voice in calling them to the Father, perhaps it's helpful to us to understand that the first step in coming to one's senses spiritually is when we finally start to think about somebody, anybody, other than ourselves. To this point, Jonah had been thinking about no one but himself. Suddenly, his conscience somehow is pricked by the questions of these pagan sailors and their inquiry and their, their integrity and their character. Even after him telling them to throw him up, they, 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 they don't want to go there if they can help it. They try all the harder to get to dry land. Something in all of this touches Jonah and suddenly Jonah is slowly beginning to come to his senses and he starts thinking about them instead of him. So he's saying something like this. You are dying for me, but I should be dying for you. I'm the one with whom God is angry. Throw me in. Even still, the mariners continue to act admirably when despite Jonah's offer, they, st- they, they still try to row to shore. And only after they realize that there's no other way to be saved and only after they acknowledge the gravity of what they are about to do in throwing Jonah overboard, do they then cast Jonah over the side of the boat And they do it in fear and in trembling. Watch this. They do it in fear and in trembling and in prayer before God. These pagan sailors. And we we see here a picture of redemption and atonement. We see a pattern of substitution would you say that with me a pattern of substitution say it again a pattern of substitution look at this Jonah's pity arouses in him one of the most primordial the the the, the what's that it, the one of the 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 those that within us we are created it, we are created with this innate sense from the very beginning with an intuition that, that gives oneself in this way. God, God has wired us this way. Even though it gets covered up and buried by all the stuff of our lives and, 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 and sin and separation from God and all of these things, Jonah's pity arouses in him one of, the, one of the most earliest human intuitions that we are created with, and namely that is this, the truest pattern of love is substitutionary. The truest pattern of love is substitutionary. Jonah is saying, I'll fully take the wrath of the waves so you don't have to. You see, true love meets the needs of the loved one no matter the cost to oneself. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus said this. The greatest love that anyone could express for another is to lay down one's life for a friend. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. And, And we're seeing this in this part of the story with Jonah. I mean, think with me for a moment, will you? Think about, for instance, parenting. Children need you to... Read, 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 and read more to them, and talk, 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 talk more to them if they're going to develop the ability to understand and to use vocabulary and language. Our children's intellectual and social skills and their emotional well-being are massively shaped by our relationship with them. By how much time we spend with them. We learn as our children get older. Uh, we have four children, as many of you know, and we have two older children grown who've left the nest and two younger ones still at home. And sometimes we feel like we have two families instead of one because there's such a gap between the four. Not our plan, but God had other ideas. And he is God, not, not I. And so we, you learn that your children are not, as I've said to you before, are not clay in your hands. But our relationship with them is key and influential. The time we spend with them. Of course, perfect parenting, if there is such a thing. If there is, I haven't discovered it. If you've discovered perfect parenting, please talk to me after. Write a book or something. Sell it to us. It might be worth our read. If there is such a thing, perfect parenting, how many know this, even perfect parenting does not guarantee perfect children. But that's besides the point. The point is this. In order for us to build the relationship that is necessary with our children, to invest in them, to spend the time with them, it entails sacrifice on our part as parents. We must disrupt our lives to do so. For years. <laughs> my youngest is 10. I was reflecting on this as, as I was preparing this past week and, and making final preparations for our time together. I was, as I was writing this, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, Lord, my youngest is 10, and I'm 50, and by the time he's 18, I'll be... For years our lives are disrupted in this way but we willingly lay down our lives because of our love we sacrifice if we don't do it they will grow up with all sorts of problems there's no guarantee they're going to be perfect even perfect parenting does not guarantee that but if But if we don't make the sacrifice and make the investment that is required in parenting, they're they're going to grow up guaranteed with all sorts of problems. So it's them or us. We must lose much of our freedom now or they will not become free, self-sufficient adults later. And, And there are many more examples that we could reflect on today. Whenever we keep a promise or a vow to someone, despite the cost, whenever we forgive someone whom we could pay back, whenever we stay close to a suffering person whose troubles are draining to her and all those around her, we are loving according to the pattern of substitutionary sacrifice. Parenting is loving according to the pattern of substitutionary sacrifice. Whenever we do any of these sorts of things that I, that I, that I just alluded to, substitutionary sacrifice, our loss, whether of money or time or energy, is their gain. Are you tracking with me? We decrease that they may increase. There's no greater desire in a parent's heart, as far as I'm concerned. There's no greater desire in a father's heart, as far as I'm concerned, than to see my own children exceed me. I want to see my sons and my daughters exceed me in every way. so I decrease, so that they might increase. But the amazing thing is, is that in such love as that, in such sacrificial love, I'm not diminished. But I become stronger, and I become wiser and I become happier, and I become deeper. How many know what I'm talking about? Where are the parents in the room today? The the grandparents who've been there, and you're, you're raising grandkids now too, and you know what I'm talking about. It's a sacrifice, and some days you wonder whether, oh, I don't know if I can do this anymore, and I don't know if I can take another day of this, but yet we do it. By God's grace, we do it. And as as we journey on with the Lord in this, we begin to realize that there is a depth and a richness and a joy that is settling into our lives that we could not have any other way. There's also great pain and sacrifice and agony and anguish that's involved as well. This is the pattern of true love. This is the pattern of unfailing love. Not a so-called love that uses others to meet our needs. That abuses others for our own self-realization. But the pattern of this sacrificial, unfailing love of God. And we learn it in parenting. We learn it in loving one another in the body of Christ. Because how many know we have to be this way with one another too? We have to lay our lives down for one another at times. Lay down our egos at times for one another. Lay down our desires at times for one another. Lay down our wishes and our preferences for one another. How many know what I'm talking about? Are you are you part of the same church that I'm a part of? We have to do, this is the sacrificial, unfailing love of God. And it hurts, and it's painful, and we don't always like it. But as we give ourselves to it, we come into a dimension together that we can know no other way. A dimension of God's love. So we should not be surprised then that when God came into the world in Jesus Christ, He loves like this. Indeed, we can imagine that the reason that this pattern of love is so transformative in human life is because we are created, in fact, in God's image, and that is how he loves. So it makes perfect sense then then that is, that, that is how we are to love as well as those made in his image. And this example of Jonah is pointing directly to this. When Jesus speaks in Matthew 12 and verse 41 of the sign of Jonah, and He calls Himself greater than Jonah. Would you say that with me? The greater than Jonah. Say it. The greater than Jonah. Jesus is the greater than Jonah. He refers to Himself. He means that as Jonah offered to sacrifice Himself for the sailors... So he, Jesus, would avail himself to die, to save us. He says, Jonah was a sign of what you are now going to see in me, except I am the greater than Jonah. Of course, the differences between Jonah and Jesus are many and marked and profound. Jonah was cast out for his own sins. But that was not true of Jesus. Jesus was without sin. Jesus did not sin. Jesus conquered sin, according to Hebrews 4 and verse 15. Jonah only came near to death and went under the water while Jesus actually died and came under the full weight of our sin and shame and punishment yet the similarity is there too. Jonah at this point takes up the role the role of a scapegoat as term was used in the Older Testament, the scapegoat, the the, the goat that was all the sins of the people were placed on this goat, and then it was sent out of the camp. The sacrifice Jonah makes saves the sailors. The sea calms down. He saves them humanly and materially. Jonah is an example of the Christian way, the Christ-like way. What counts is that this story is in reality the praise, intimation of an infinitely, infinitely vaster story and one which concerns all of us directly in Christ what Jonah could not do but what his attitude announces is in fact done by Christ he it is who accepts total condemnation Jonah is not Jesus Christ but he is one of the long line of types of Jesus pictures that typify Jesus, each representing an aspect of what the Son of God will be in totality. And if it is true that the sacrifice of a man who takes his condemnation can save others around him, then this is far more true when the one sacrificed is the Son of God himself. And it is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails, and saves. Jesus summarizes His mission for us in Mark 10 and verse 45. I think it's on the screen for us. Say, Read this nice and loud with me. Will you? Let's rattle the walls in this room. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The greater than Jonah. The word translated for in a ransom for many here in this text is called, is what's called a preposition of substitution, for, a ransom for many, a preposition of substitution for those of us that hated grammar class, this, this, this is to help us, and so As a preposition of substitution, the verse means that Jesus died on our behalf. Substitution. Turn to the person beside you and say, he died on your behalf. Go ahead, tell them that. He died on your behalf. He died on my behalf. As the great hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. When the Son of God first came into this world, beloved, as Jesus Christ, bearing our humanity, and later went to the cross, bearing our sin, He became the greatest example and fulfillment of the pattern of true love. Substitutionary sacrifice. And we are called to walk in this way as well. This cruciformed way. Laying our lives down. One for another. Laying our lives down for the sake of the salvation and the redemption of this world. Laying our lives down for the sake of the breaking in of God's kingdom more and more on this earth even in such dark and devastating hours as this, with all that we see going on in the world around us. Even in Iran, which is interestingly in this part of the world where this story uh, of, of, of Scripture is, is, is so much related, it, it, God's purposes... We are called to walk in this as well, substitutionary sacrifice. And then the story says that when this happened, when Jonah gave himself in this way and they hurled him into the sea, the sea ceased from its raging immediately. Can you imagine this? Jonah hits the water and plunges in and immediately all is calm. The moment Jonah went under the water, the storm switched off as suddenly as a light being turned off. Just bam. And we're told that the sea ceased from its raging in verse 15. And some might see this as poetic personification or just kind of mere rhetoric. But is that all it is? The anger of the storm was a real expression of the anger of God toward His rebellious prophet, which was turned aside when Jonah was cast into the waves. And likewise, in the same way, Jesus' sacrifice is called, here's another word for us, it's called a propitiation. It's an old word. It's a word that we're probably quite unfamiliar with. Used in Romans and Hebrews and by John, and it's an old word that means this. All right, don't don't let the, the the sound of the word intimidate you. Propitiation, but it means that Christ dealt with the wrath of God towards sin and evil by standing in our place and bearing the punishment as we deserve. Now, now this is not about. Uh, uh, An angry God, like an angry, abusive father who was beating up on his son. Though that has come to be the depiction that we have of this in in this day. This was about the son who in his love... And in his commitment to the Father and the Father's purposes for us, in his love and devotion to the Father and to us, he willingly gives himself in this way. And he willingly says, Father, I will take this cup. I will bear all of this according to your goodwill and purposes and on behalf of all human beings.